From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. I am Malihe Razazan. And I am Mira Nabulsi. For hundreds of millions of Muslims around the world, Ramadan is a holy month of fasting, praying, and family get-togethers. In the Arab world, Ramadan also happens to be the time when people feast on their favorite TV series and soap operas. This week, we speak with CUNY anthropologist Professor Krista Salamandra about Syrian dramas and how the ongoing war in Syria has impacted the drama scene in the country. But first, we hear Khalil Bendib's interview with Tunisian journalist and researcher Asma Ghribi about the struggle for gender equality in Tunisia and the recent changes in family law. Asma, Tunisia, before and after the revolution of 2011, has been designated by the West as the model student of the Arab world. Before 2011, for its obedience to the neoliberal agenda, and after 2011, for being the only country in North Africa and the Middle East somewhat to have managed a transition to democracy. And yet many fundamental economic and social justice problems remain, and many in the poorer regions of the country despair to ever see fundamental change. Against this mixed picture of progress and stagnation, one area of particular interest to the rest of the world is the evolution of women's rights in Tunisia, Mm -hmm. which tend to receive more headlines than the rest of the issues. It is a country that has, since its independence in 1956, and it has distinguished itself by transcending conservative Islamic family law in many Mm -hmm. ways, and that made Tunisia a relative oasis for women's rights and, and its immediate vicinity. For historical background information, would you list some of the pioneering strides accomplished for gender equality in the first few decades of independence under the rule of Habib Bourguiba? Yeah, so first of all, let's start with the code of personal status. I think just a few months actually after the independence, the government, they enacted the code of personal status, which is a set of family laws. It's very progressive for its time. And I think it is still progressive up until now. It's not just for the 1950s, even compared to family laws across the Arab world. I think it is still a progressive text. So this law, it granted women the right to civil divorce. It outlawed polygamy. It elevated the status of women within the family in general and also in society. This is just examples. I think from the 1970s, abortion has been legal in Tunisia. It's relevant to those listening in the U.S. because this is a debate that I personally was introduced to when I came to America. But in Tunisia, it's not a debate anymore. Women have the right to access safe abortion in public hospitals and no need for authorization from husbands or anything. Uh, so yeah, so Bourguiba started the trend. And then Ben Ali also, he kept the same pattern and he also granted women more rights. Sorry, so let's remind our listeners that Bourguiba yeah. was in charge from what, 56 to 87? Yes, yes. And, and then Ben yeah. Ali took over. 
Yeah, and then Ben Ali took over from November 1987 until the uprising of 2011. Bourguiba is usually held as the visionary independence leader of Tunisia until he was deposed in a bloodless coup in 1987. For being senile and... For being uh, senile, yeah. I mean, Mm. also starting from the 70s and 80s, he also declared himself a president for life, and he was not a Democrat, let's be clear. All of these reforms also that Bourguiba himself enacted and led, and and they're praised in Tunisia and outside, they were not also democratic reforms. So also, to speak, they were imposed and they were more top-down decisions. Let's, again, reiterate how progressive and and (laughs) ahead of its time some of these measures were. The fact that Tunisia, for example, adopted free abortion before France, that's quite remarkable. Yeah. It beat uh, many Western countries to this particular freedom for women's right to control their bodies. But before we go any deeper into these remarkable accomplishments, what's your theory on how this was made possible. You say it was top-down. It was Bourguiba's impulse. But still, it happened in Tunisia. It didn't happen in Algeria. It didn't happen in Libya. What makes a country like Tunisia able to come up with these progressive ideas before others? I think there is, let's say, a history for reformist movement in Tunisia. Like, for example, it started from the reforms of 1860, the constitution of Ahd al-Amin. We tend to hold that as the first. That's when Tunisia started doing all these reforms. Tunisia was also one of the first countries to outlaw slavery. Tunisia had one of the first written constitutions in the Arab world. Before Bourguiba, there was a revolutionary book by Tahir Haddad. He's one of Tunisia's earliest feminists. His famous book is called Our Woman in, in Sharia and in Life. And then he wrote about like all these laws and the place of women in the public sphere and also in the private sphere women access to education, women access to political participation. And after that, I think Bourguiba's vision for a modern Tunisia was not uncontroversial. There was also resistance and there was a conservative camp, also nationalist social conservative camp led by Bourguiba's opponent at the time. But the co-leader of this independence movement, Saleh bin Yusuf, was assassinated. It's Bourguiba's and, and his modernist vision that won. There was kind of a, a coalition at the time between the coastal landowners and urban workers that supported Bourguiba's project. And also some of the reformist religious establishment also agreed with Bourguiba. So even after Bourguiba passed from the scene... Ben Ali kept going in that same direction. Tell us what Ben Ali accomplished or tried to accomplish. So Ben Ali continued, but he was more, let's say, more cynical because he knew that the issue of women's empowerment and women's rights in the Arab world sells very well to Western donors. And he made sure to really use that in his advantage So, for example, Ben Ali, he amended, I think one of his achievements in this field would be, is when he amended nationality law, granting Tunisian women the right to pass their citizenship to their children, even if they're born abroad and even if they're born to a non-Tunisian father, which also 
very, I don't think it's the case across the Arab world. No, <laughs> it's remarkable, yes. Also, another achievement of Benami is there was a legal distinction before he changed this law, but there was the so-called honor killings and other types of murder. And one of the things that Benami did was he removed any judicial leniency for killing women in the name of honor. So this is something else that Benami did, and honor killings are not something you hear of in Tunisia. And more recently, since 2017, two new major steps towards uh, gender equality have been at least attempted. The right for Tunisian women to marry non-Muslims and the same right to inheritance as Tunisian men. Two big controversial issues uh, in a Muslim Arab country. Let's discuss the former first. There had been some strides made towards marriage with non-Muslim men uh, since the mid-70s, apparently. But what has since happened? Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, I think I think again because Ben Ali's reforms he sought to only pass like non-controversial reforms. So something like the nationality law, something like the honor killing law. I don't think they're as controversial as the marriage law for example allowing Tunisian Muslim women to marry non-Muslim men and as controversial as the inheritance law. Those two provisions, and according to uh, polls conducted by American NGOs, and uh, that, that's the one I can remember, there's the International Republic Institute, they did a survey on this specific issue, and they, for the issue of um, allowing Tunisian women to marry non-Muslim men, the majority of the society, according to this survey, including even women, are opposed to this, to changing the law, and they wanted to keep the status quo enforce any non-Muslim man who wants to marry a Tunisian Muslim woman to convert to Islam. But I think that's why we needed a democracy, I think, to be able to pass these provisions. Because again, Tunisian feminist movement was sidelined under Ben Ali. And anyone or any feminist that did not follow the state concept and the state understanding of feminism and the rights that the state wanted to endow upon Tunisian women were also excluded. So that's why we needed that space. We needed civil society and Tunisian feminist groups to have that space that democracy has given them to voice their concerns and their demands. And that's why these controversial issues are now on the table and are being discussed. And we have, yeah, we have achieved some progress in this. So not everybody in Tunisia, although the, the overwhelming majority is, not everybody in Tunisia is Muslim. No, 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 no. So those no, people are not clear. concerned by this law. They could marry into their own yes. faith or, or yes. other faiths. Yes. So yes. This, this restriction only applied to Muslim women. Uh, yes. Uh, I know it's a long tradition, uh, mm -hmm. but, but why is it that there's such resistance to the idea of a Muslim woman as opposed to a Muslim man marrying outside the faith? The I faith? think it's just classic patriarchy and sexism, both of which are deeply rooted in the Tunisian society. And I think there's a gap between the progressive legal framework and what, you know, your average Tunisian wants. Yeah, I grew up in Algeria, so we had the same feeling. I remember myself as a young man feeling outraged at the idea that some foreigners might come and steal, <laughs> quote unquote, our property, you know, our rightful property, our beautiful women. 
And why would we allow that? <laughs> but the, and the reverse, it didn't bother me in the least. I had uncles who had married French women, and that was not really an issue. It's just hypocrisy and double standards, because I think even if you go back, I, I'm, not, I'm not a religious scholar, but my understanding is that the religious text is clear that both men, and like even if you are to use religion as an argument, I think the religious text says that both men and women should marry within their faith. So why the law is suddenly outlawing that only on women and not on men, and just to show that the law is not even consistent, because some people are using the religious argument, like, no, if you are a Muslim woman, you need, you must marry a Muslim man, but why can't you ask, use that same argument and, and change the law that allowed men to marry non-Muslim women? Yes, and many of these discriminatory uh, rules have nothing or very little to do with with the doctrine of Islam. It, it's really more tradition, based on yeah. traditions that go back for time immemorial and are not questioned, period. They're associated, yeah, yeah. rightly or wrongly, usually wrongly, with the faith itself. Tunisia happens to have a strong Islamic movement that is mm -hmm. represented in parliament and is one of the major political parties, Anahda, Renaissance mm -hmm. Arabic. Yeah. What is the position of Anahda, or Renaissance in Arabic? What's their position towards this new right that's being considered for women to marry outside of Islam? So Anahda, they really tried for, for a good amount of time to avoid the question and to have publicly announced their opinion, but they formally have opposed the, the law. They said that they opposed reforming the inheritance law and giving women equal inheritance because they said that changing the law would uh, bear contradiction to the religious text and that religious teachings are clear when it comes to inheritance provisions and that the law should not be changed. And I imagine they were embarrassed. They were trying to avoid the issue. Why were, were they not just outright against it from the, the very start? Well, well, they announced this, but because last year Nahda went through a rebranding and they announced that they were no longer an Islamist party and that they are a civil, civic or civilian party and it's not an Islamist party, but they're more like Muslim Democrats, I guess. Mm. But so this happening just a few months later and them having to suddenly refer to an Islamic reference to oppose this law. And they usually try to, at least publicly, to say that, no, we're, we're a Tunisian movement, we're rooted in Tunisia, and we are pro-women, and we believe in women's rights, and we're not here to, we're here to push for progress for women's rights, and we're not here to limit or to, let's say, harm the achievements of Tunisian women when it comes to their rights and their freedoms and everything. So would it be fair to imagine that perhaps part of the motivation on the part of the secularists uh, and the president of Tunisia, Beji Qaid Sipsi, to propose such a law might be also to embarrass Anahda? Yes, it could be either to either embarrass them, marginalize them or, a little bit, or to also keep the same trend of of because Beji uh, Sipsi he also ran on an anti-Islamist platform, so he always likes to project himself as like I'm the secular, I'm the progressive, I'm 
I belong to the same reformist movement that started in Tunisia in the 19th century. So I'm part of that. I'm leading the country towards progress as opposed to what he would call like these Islamists, these who want to, I don't know, bring a new way of life that is foreign to Tunisia and its progressive values. So it's, it's and also, again, selling that same thing to the West and keeping the same trend of using women's rights as a cover for other political maneuvers. This president who we're just talking about, we should remind our listeners that he's now 92 years old. Yes. And he has served as minister under both uh, previous dictators, yeah. uh, Bourguiba served, and Ben Ali. Yeah. He was Speaker of Parliament, I think, under Ben Ali. He didn't serve in the cabinet. And he's choosing now to make uh, women's rights his chosen legacy, apparently. And notwithstanding the skepticism and the cynicism, maybe, towards his uh, actual motives. Yes. So what's happening now to these two proposals? The first one, uh, to allow Muslim Tunisian women to marry outside the faith, and the second one, which we haven't talked in detail about yet, to actually allow all citizens to inherit equally, regardless of gender? So for the, for the first one, the ban has been lifted. It's a decree, so the president can just lift it without having to go through the parliament. So that's no longer a problem. Tunisian mm. women do effectively have the right to marry whoever they want right now. But for the inheritance law so that's that's a much harder move because it involves because it has to be approved by the parliament so the president announced it and then the government i think proposed a law and actually it was approved by the council of ministers but it has to go through the parliament for the final passage and since anahda announced that it's against it anahda controls a good amount, I think close to one third of the seats in parliament. So without another support, it will be very hard to pass this law. And because it's also an election year, it seems like the consensus is to maybe leave it for next year for after the for the next government to deal with. So other than the uh, patriarchal reflex, is there a rationale for denying women equal inheritance? Uh, I think so far. Budget? The strongest argument has been the religious one. Mm. Because I don't know if you saw, like, Al-Azhar, which is the supreme religious authority in Egypt, has also announced that it's against the law, against Tunisia changing this law, several other religious scholars. So the main and strongest opposition is using the religious argument. Because the text is clear, the Quran mentions uh, how inheritance should be. Done. Which can be seen out of context, because before Islam, there was no inheritance, if I'm not mistaken. And the Quran yes. actually advanced women's rights by saying, yes. okay, we'll do it halfway. <laughs> they, yeah, they are yeah, going no. to inherit something, right? Absolutely. Yeah. I think any religious text should be read in context. So Quran, when, when, he, when he was first presented... It was, as you said, progressive for its time because women had no access to an inheritance at all. So, of course, we have to read in that. But right now, for the example of Tunisia, where women are increasingly expected to contribute to the household expenses and to be financially independent, 
and then like are we equal in duties but not in rights it's it's incredible honestly like all the arguments that i hear against it it's it's either the religious argument or but it's funny because also tunisia is not a theocracy it's a civil state and most of our laws are not sourced in the Quran or Sunnah or Sharia. So why suddenly everyone is caring about what the Quran is saying about this? Can we also say, oh, by the way, the Quran allowed polygamy, but polygamy is outlawed in Tunisia. Why should we also allow polygamy? Because it's allowed in the Quran. Should we also allow so many other things? So it's funny, the again, the double standards and how the religious argument is always used in to serve a specific agenda and to serve just the interests of the patriarchy. So uh, Tunisia, I'm sure like every country, is composed of roughly 50%, maybe slightly more uh, women. As this law is proposed to the parliament, which is supposed to represent the entire people, your sense is that it would have a hard time passing because there's still a majority of people who are just too conservative for the idea? I don't, I don't know, because another is only 67%. We'll have to look at, really look at every MP and try to guess whether they would vote for it or not. I think it has good chances, but you never know. Because also the way things happen at the Tunisian parliament, there's always many deals and like parties would agree in advance whether or not that a law would pass. So usually people know. The progressive camp is pretty strong in the Tunisian parliament, and it has a good representation. Even among the religious MPs, there are some women, and I imagine that perhaps even among uh, them. No? <laughs> not many. I, I'm not sure. Nava, as a party, tends to vote together in bloc. Mm. So I don't expect defections. And just specifically on this issue, I like many years ago, I think when no one was talking about this issue yet in Tunisia in 2014, I wrote an article about this, the inheritance. And I remember speaking with a couple Nahda MPs and they were women. And at least the one I spoke with were opposed to inheritance equality. So the fact that they're women doesn't mean that they would agree. I think according to this poll I mentioned earlier to the IRI poll, I think even the majority of women, I'm not sure, but I think according to this poll, even among women, the reforming the inheritance law is not as popular. It's so not, it's not it's not yeah. foregone conclusion that even yes. women will vote in majority exactly, for this yes. right. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tunisia is the one country where formal democracy has been acquired and retained. Mm-hmm. And yet it's continuing economic crisis. I mean, among all those Arab Spring countries, it's Mm -hmm. the one that so far, knock on wood, has managed to come this far. Yet it's continuing economic crisis, as in any country, including the U.S., poses a threat to stability and to the future of the very notion of democracy. And yet emblematic of the current travails, recent demonstrations have taken place in Tunisia and Sidi Bouzid. Yes. Uh, where the Jasmine Revolution began in 2010. Tell us a little bit about the, the economic situation. It seems that whatever government has come to the fore 
and elected governments, they've been basically impotent or unwilling to make real fundamental change for the majority of, of Tunisians. So Tunisia is really, yeah, as you mentioned, like unemployment has been consistently high at, I think it's currently at 15%. Inflation is very high. Life has gotten very expensive for the middle class and for the lower middle class and also for lower classes in general for those like with low and medium income and the problem is tunisia just macroeconomic problems like the bloated public service the government needs to reform itself and reduce its spending all these structural reforms that international financial institutions want tunisia to do will be very painful for Tunisians and will also be politically costly for the government that decides to venture and lead these reforms. So that's why I think the successive governments after the uprising have been hesitant to start these reforms because they know how hard they will be. And then I think the current government has started a little bit, but it has faced tremendous resistance from the Tunisia's left in general, from the UGTT, the country's labor union. It's very, very strong. It has also faced resistance from the average Tunisian because it's very hard for them to understand, well, you have to make sacrifices right now and you may lose your job. Or I don't know what these reforms may mean for people, but in the long run, it will improve our economy. So Good luck finding someone to understand that logic because everyone is struggling. So I think that's why it has been very hard for all these governments to really fix Tunisia's problems. So you take a more liberal view of the economy. My impression was that both the Nida Tunis, which are the continuation in many ways of the previous regime, uh-huh. and as well as uh, the Nahda, they're both fundamentally neoliberals. In that way, they're not going to do much for poor areas of the poorer regions of Tunisia if they're going to adhere to a more neoliberal system of, of austerity, of, of less yeah. public development, less public spending. And I was assuming that's part of the problem, that there is no consensus among the left to actually try to do something for the average Tunisian, not just for the coastal elites. Listen, I think let's we can agree on what economic policy Tunisia should take, whether Tunisia should be a ruthless capitalist country or it should be a socialist safe haven. Just look around us. Well, Tunisia is a small country that relies on its Western donors to survive. Investors. And investors. Yeah. Yeah. And you have to abide by the rules of the game to be part of the game. Tunisia has no choice but to implement these reforms. And these reforms will be very painful. And you know what? Also, these reforms may harm Tunisia's chances to democratize. That's where Tunisia right now is. It has been very hard for Tunisia to implement these reforms because Tunisia is a democracy and because there is space for, for example, for strikes, for the UGTT, for the labor union to tell the government, no, we're not going to do these reforms because they hurt the interests of our people. And that's great that it's happening. It's not something that could have happened under Ben Ali, But at the same time, so Tunisia now is facing that hard choice. Satisfy the donors or satisfy the people. 
And finally, I'd like to end with this question, more philosophical, broader question perhaps, to come back to the, the question of gender rights. Uh, what does Tunisia's progress in women's rights, what does it bode for the very idea of plurality in your country? Is the, for example, the fact that non-Muslims would marry Tunisian women, does that also advance the general concept of a secular country where people of all religious backgrounds are equal before the law. Is that important? I mean, Of course. I think it's all happening, not just women, but Tunisia's racial, ethnic, sexual minorities. They now have a voice because of the civic space that Tunisia has. So now there are several LGBT advocacy groups have, that have been formed and they're legally recognized since the uprising and they're working and they're advocating for their rights and for and for Tunisia to become a safer space for them. And Tunisia's racial minorities, Tunisia's black community, Tunisian society in general, I think I'm comfortable saying is, is a racist society. And But only recently because the voice that they were given after the uprising, they formed NGOs and they advocated for a law to criminalize racism. Racism is now criminalized in Tunisia. You could pay a fine. You could go to jail for being racist. And this is how the uprising is giving voice to all these minorities. Tunisia's linguistic minority, Tunisia's Amazir, which are, they're tiny in terms of number, but they're now talking, they're forming groups, they're talking about their Finally, they're talking about what type of discrimination they faced under the former regimes. I think there's space for all of these components of Tunisia to exist and to live together and to nurture each other. And I am thankful that the uprising allowed all these groups to finally find voice and advocate for a safe space for them in Tunisia. Asma Ghribi is a journalist and researcher focusing on Tunisia. She spoke with Khalil Bandim. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. Ramadan had just wrapped up. The holy month for Muslims is a time for fasting, praying, and family gatherings. But in the Arab world, it is also the time when people feast on their favorite dramas and soap operas. Every year for Ramadan, the entertainment industry in the Arab world releases many new shows and TV dramas, also known as Muselsalat. This week, we are going to take a look at the Syrian drama scene. Despite the bloody conflict that began in 2011, Syrian drama continued, sometimes releasing dozens of shows a year, and perhaps only competing with Egyptian drama in popularity. So how has the ongoing conflict in Syria impacted the drama scene in that country? And how do writers and directors navigate the unstable political landscape as well as state censorship. 
I put these questions to Krista Salamandra. She is a professor of anthropology at Lehman College and the Graduate Center at the City University of New York. I started by asking her about what characterizes Syrian drama this Ramadan. Well, this year has been a big comeback for Syria, and it's estimated there are around 28 Syrian serials being aired this Ramadan. And that, of course, depends upon what one considers a Syrian drama, because there are a lot of co-productions now. And that was something that actually started before the current conflict, but has intensified with the dispersion of media makers throughout the Arab world. So you're seeing a lot of Lebanese and Syrian co-productions, and Syrians working in dramas that are produced outside of Syria and aired and filmed outside of Syria. So that's one big trend is is the Mm co-production. There are more of them this year. And they've become very popular, and several are now on Netflix and available with English subtitles if your listeners would like to see them. And yeah, I was going to actually ask you about this whole comeback because I read some articles in Arabic that talk about that. And I think it's interesting that perhaps this comeback is coinciding also with the renormalization, if we may call it so, of the Syrian regime potentially coming back into the Arab State League, as well as, from what I understand, a change in um, the boycott that kind of was going on for many of the Arab TV stations buying Syrian drama. Is that maybe an accurate observation? I think that's part of it, but there's actually a lot of dispute about whether there actually was a boycott or not. Mm -hmm. Uh, There was never a formal boycott. Um, However, I do think that Syrian dramas have become more attractive to GCC, uh, Gulf Cooperation Council-based buyers that, that are largely located in the United Arab Emirates than they had been. And that may be linked to normalization, but there was never a formal boycott as far as my conversations with programmers Mm -hmm. in the United Arab Emirates have indicated. So I thought it might be useful for our listeners to understand a little bit more about the ecosystem of the Syrian drama, particularly how it changed after the Syrian revolution of 2011. Many Syrian artists fled the country, moved to Lebanon and Egypt, and now we're seeing many Arab mixed shows, like you were saying, mixed casts and production teams. At the same time, the production inside Syria continued, despite the very volatile political situation. Can you expand a little bit more on that? Well, it never actually stopped. It was cut in half during the most intense years of the conflict. And that means it was cut from, say, 40 or 45 to 20, 15 to 20. And several of those would always be filmed still in Damascus. There was never a complete halt of production. But many serials got produced in Lebanon, for example. And then actors and crew would travel to Lebanon and back. Even those who were still living in Damascus would film in Lebanon. Now we're seeing Damascus again, returning as a filming site, as a location site. Not so much the rest of Syria, as it had been before the war, but Damascus particularly. And how did the Syrian drama change since 2011? Has the political messaging changed, in your opinion? How do we see the instability, I guess, translate into the screen? Well, I think you saw the war being dealt with gradually as the conflict evolved. At first, there was a real reluctance to kind of take it on. Then uh, drama makers got bolder, particularly those filming outside of Syria, got much clearer in their referencing and much more willing to broach, you know, sort of very heated and sensitive issues about 
the supporting of the opposition or the supporting of the regime and contrast between those two groups were actually featured in serials and sometimes with cross-casting because as you may know the actors in Syria are really public figures they're the country they're very often the country's public intellectuals as well drama makers in general um, and actors in particular who are the face of the industry they have really run the gamut of responses to the conflict from a very strong support of the opposition and condemnation of the regime and those actors are largely in exile mm-hmm. to very, very strong supporters of the regime and lots of gray areas in between. Much like the Syrian population, they're very much a microcosm. And that's also true for directors and screenwriters, although most screenwriters are oppositional. Um, So what we saw were both serials in which oppositional and pro-regime figures were brought together to act their own positions and also cross-casting, which was very interesting. Mm-hmm. and probably quite challenging for the actors themselves and the actors having to work together on these intense filming experiences which can run every day all day for months so a very very close-knit environment it's emotionally intense outside of conflict times so one can only imagine how fraught a process it must have been At the same time, uh, my sense is there hasn't been a drama series that objectively discussed the reality of the situation on the ground in Syria. And those that did were more pieces of propaganda for the regime. Correct me if I'm wrong. I don't think that's entirely accurate. I think Mm -hmm. that dramas do also, like their creators, run the gamut from being those that are filmed outside quite oppositional to... Yes, I would, I would argue those that, that reiterate the regime's, the regime's position and defend it. It's quite interesting that many of the actors uh, or satirists that generations of Arabs grew up looking up to, like Dureid Laham or Yasser Al-Adme, remained in Syria and have supported the regime. It is, absolutely. And that's something that, you know, needs analysis, but it also is not representative of the industry as a whole, because actors are only one part of the picture. Writers are an important element as well. And if you look at the uh, screenwriters for these serials, very often they're oppositional. And there were at least a few dramas that also dealt with Syrians uh, as refugees. For example, I remember the show Ghadan Naltaqi, or Tomorrow We Should yeah. Meet, the yeah. translation. And it was a drama that was filmed in Lebanon and chronicled Syrian refugees uh, in Lebanon and their struggles. I believe the Syria received uh, some positive reviews. What did you think of depictions or maybe this drama or others that talked about Syrians as refugees as well? Cynically put, the refugee experience can help producers avoid actually talking about Syria, not setting a a serial in Damascus, but setting it in a refugee community, does avoid some red lines. On the other hand, I think that tomorrow we'll meet again in particular with Masterful. There are others, but it was probably the serial that most directly and sensitively and objectively, to use your term, looked at the conflicts of ideological and political positions. And that was the one that featured the most striking cross-casting between an actor playing an oppositional figure whose own position is actually pro-regime and vice versa. 
and it was also just a very good serial because I think what a lot of what gets missing in the conversation about Syrian drama is that it's drama and that it's fiction and that drama makers see themselves as artists. And it's not just about talking politics all the time. Sometimes mm -hmm. it's, talk, it's about talking about society. Sometimes it's about making formal innovations in the form. So there's a lot going on. And Western media has a tendency to focus on, and it's understandable, uh, viewers often have a tendency to focus on the politics and the political messaging. And it's totally understandable given the funding sources and the state censorship, not just within Syria, but within the Gulf, among the Gulf channels as well. So drama producers have to deal with two sets of censors when they produce anything. And they have to please various audiences, various markets, various buyers. And I wanted us to talk about the drama, but as well maybe art or theater in Syria before 2011. In one of your articles, you talk about an outpouring of Syrian drama in the early 2000s. What do you think characterizes Syrian art or Syrian drama of that period? And perhaps as well, if you can give us an insight into what was going on politically during that time for it to be such a huge amount of production? Well, what actually happened started in the early 1990s, and you had the convergence of three factors, one of which was the rise of, of pan-Arab entertainment channels, satellite channels in the Gulf, largely owned by Saudi and Emirati state and private sources. Then you had the beginnings of private production in Syria. So you had the swelling of production companies, where before this, all production had been state production. It had all been public sector production. The third thing is that you have continued censorship of other forms of art and prioritization of the market at the same time so that non-commercial art really did not provide artists, writers, filmmakers, actors, etc., with a living. And other forms of intellectual engagement, which were non-fictional, continued to be heavily censored and suppressed. Mm -hmm. So journalists, people who would ordinarily have been academics, wrote screenplays. The country's leading novelists and poets wrote screenplays. And that's something that happened earlier, but it intensified in the 19, early 1990s when suddenly there were employment opportunities. And that, in the 2000s, proliferated. And when Bashar al-Assad came to power, he certainly paid lip service to supporting the industry. And lots of people, media makers and beyond, were very hopeful in that era. It was the era of the Damascus Spring. And many uh, media makers, and people forget this as well, many TV makers were involved in the Damascus Spring and were very hopeful about its reform potential. Of course, that was very quickly suppressed, mm. but the drama industry survived it. And actually you can still see the sort of the energy of that era in the, in the dramas from the early, and the comedies, the satirical comedies from the early 2000s. I was actually, yeah, going to say how I've always found it interesting how Syrian drama and political comedy or satire shows were able to work within the severe political restrictions of the authoritarian regime and still were able to present uh, political critique, social critique too, but I think the political is still uh, the very interesting part of this. 
a critique that was able to speak to the Arab audience. And we've had examples of shows that continued for years and even maybe decades. How does that work? Well, there are different theories about how this works. Some people argue, Syrians and outside observers, that it's basically all the regime's doing. The regime completely controls the public sphere so that they kind of dictate when they want to float criticism, when they want to allow a certain, a certain amount of criticism in order to create a safety valve for the masses to sort of contain and, and disperse any kind of oppositional energy. And that makes a kind of sense until you look at the, the ways in which serials actually play out, particularly the comedy serials. If they go too far, they get reprimanded. They get censored. They get cut. They are not able to continue with certain storylines, with certain kinds of critiques. So if it's all orchestrated, then it's un it would be unlikely that you would find that kind of stop and start mechanism going on. The other thing is just to mention, again, the writers and the writers very often being oppositional and very often writing from positions of exile. This is Syria drama, generally speaking. Mm. Um, and it seems it seems very unlikely that everybody would be engaging in, in this this regime orchestrated game. So it's my position that there's been a gradual sort of I call it a movable wall of fear. There's been a gradual pushing forward um, and sometimes backlash of the, the boundaries of the permissible. Mm -hmm. And interestingly, they sometimes cover corruption, nepotism, the gap in wealth, poverty, but don't necessarily point to a specific regime or a, a specific Arab leader. And I think that's why it was so spoke perhaps to like really a wide array of the Arab audience and at the same time perhaps were able to pass through the state and still make it to TV screens. Absolutely. You know, Syrian drama makers distinguish themselves from their Egyptian counterparts in many ways, but one of the things that they often talk about is the fact that they are Arab drama in a way that Egyptian is always Egyptian drama. Mm -hmm. um, and that they may also link, you know, Syria was the, the birthplace of Arab nationalism. So they, and that Arab nationalism always lived, you know, lived in this tension with the particular Arab nationalisms. Um, and Syrian intellectuals pride themselves on being able to kind of bridge that tension and to speak to wider audiences, which is, is necessary given that the Syrian market could not sustain the amount of production and it cannot employ the amount of talent that Syria has. And they really are dependent upon the Gulf market. You had mentioned Netflix earlier. How do you think that might change the game a little bit? Shows being on Netflix, that means possibly a wider, not only Arab, but international audience. Do you think that kind of helped um, perhaps the distribution of Syrian drama, especially because you talk in your work about the unstable situation for the Syrian drama as an industry. Absolutely. Programmers in the United Arab Emirates are now talking about Netflix as a real serious game changer. It may be able to finally move Arab drama beyond the Ramadan stranglehold. I mean, Ramadan has been both a blessing and a curse 
the, the broad, Ramadan is a broadcast season. It has been both a blessing and a curse for drama makers because on the one hand, it's it creates this buzz, but it also uh, means that everyone has to compete for that month. And it was really when people started watching a lot of drama on the internet, it was thought that, oh, okay, finally, finally, we're not going to, to be beholden to Ramadan anymore. We can actually have a year-long broadcast phenomenon as opposed to a month-long, having to produce everything for one month and not actually knowing when that month is going to be. It, it, it's kind of a, night, a yearly nightmare for all involved. Um, that didn't happen immediately, but I, people now think that Netflix may, may actually move our drama in, in that direction. The other thing is it is really compelling, much higher production values. Um, and it seems like the Syrians have been able to, from what I'm watching this season, have really been making strides at meeting that, meeting that challenge. And in terms of the content and the stories and the maybe values that would be offered as part of a production that maybe speaks to an international audience, what do you think uh, that might look like? Well, sadly, um, it seems that what has been picked up so far have been what the Syrians would call layer works. Mm. Their production values are very high. Um, they're well-scripted, uh, tight plot lines. There's still the 30 episodes that you know are shown on consecutive nights during Ramadan, so there's still the 30-episode structure, but they tend to be more crowd-pleasing. The critically acclaimed Syrian dramas are social realism, which are, you mentioned one prime example, which was Tomorrow We'll Meet Again. They're very culturally specific to a certain extent, but beyond this, they're really serious dramas that have niche audiences. They have intellectual audiences, but they have niche audiences. And Syria has really excelled at this kind of social realism, partly because they didn't have the infrastructure that, say, their Egyptian competitors had, so they had to film on location. They didn't have a star system, so they used very strong ensemble casts. They borrowed from other art forms because there really isn't a cinema industry to speak of. There's no commercial cinema industry. So there's a lot of crossover. People are, are doing all the, the various performing and, and media art forms. So they, they really drew on a, an excellent pool of talent. Same with writers. And they've created this very serious social realist uh, genre that may not lend itself so well to a commercial outlet like Netflix. It hasn't so far. My hope is that it will. Mm -hmm. But what we've seen so far are kind of police mafia stories, sadly. And they're <laughs> wonderful, but they don't represent the wide range of what the Syrians are able to produce mm. and what produce. Does that include Al Haiba? <laughs> that includes Al Haiba, which I love. I'm addicted to Al Haiba. But it doesn't look a lot like the social realism mm. that is, is like global social realism. You know, the, the concerns are class conflict, gender relations, housing crises, corruption. Very often they are set in informal settlements, shantytown. Mm. Even though they don't attract the widest range of viewers, they have been uh, critically acclaimed. They have their viewership. They have a longer shelf life, actually, than a lot of the more crowd-pleasing dramas. People remember them and talk about them years later. The one I worked on 
most closely, Alintizar is, is one of those. People now call it a classic. It didn't attract a wide viewership at first. And then they're also replayed throughout the year and they, they can attract more viewers when they're not part of the Ramadan outpouring. Mm. This is, I guess, what happens uh, for many shows, Syrian and others. There's just this huge crowdedness, like you were saying. It's really hard to pick, but then throughout the year, people start maybe watching things that they have missed during the month of Ramadan. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And despite the vibrant uh, drama and TV scene, why haven't we seen a vibrant Syrian cinema? Uh, My sense is that now we're seeing a little bit more because we're seeing so many artists in the diaspora, uh, people who have fled the country, and we're seeing more cinema and documentary work, but it's maybe not as proliferate as the Syrian drama is. Well, I I think the issue is one of funding. Mm. And I think we're seeing some really wonderful documentaries coming from documentary filmmakers in exile. There's a very sizable young generation producing really wonderful material. But I think that the issue is really one of lack of a market and lack of funding sources. The Syrian state has not, for various reasons, some of which are obvious and some less so, has not funded, has not promoted a commercial film industry in Syria. It doesn't have the infrastructure and hasn't built the infrastructure to sustain one. Um, and, and drama has really benefited from that lack. I think now that, that there are increasing outside sources, although they, these have waned in, in, in the past year or so, Outside funders, say in the UAE, who are interested in funding fictional film. Um, So we have seen a few emerge. Uh, The United Nations had a project in Lebanon, which helped even some TV makers make their first short drama films. But these have been very small and uh, very small and isolated efforts that haven't really translated into a trend as of yet. And I'm wondering to what extent where we see also like a completely different set of issues and topics being discussed in maybe uh, new independent film projects, because now there's a huge Syrian population throughout the world, in Europe, in the US. And I'm wondering how much will we see also very new types of uh, productions and topics? Uh, We're seeing a lot of documentary film, Mm -hmm. as I mentioned. So we're really, I think it's not only the most documented conflict in history, as as people are saying, but it may well be the war that has produced the most documentary film as it was happening. And the same goes for theater. There are there are a lot of really wonderful theatrical groups in exile that have been doing some really brave, hard hitting and poignant studies, conflict itself of the experience of exile, of the difficulties refugees face, um, and even of the experience within Syria of imprisonment and torture. But in terms of film, we haven't seen the fictionalized version of that experience in film as of yet, or in its only beginning in drama, in TV drama. So, but I, that may well be the next, the next direction. In a Twitter exchange uh, that I had not too long ago with a couple of Syrian activists, they were saying that a documentary is produced for, Syrian documentary is produced for the international audience versus a drama is more for the Syrian and Arab audience. Do you agree with that? I think that's fair. And I think that a lot of it has to do with exhibition venues. 
fiction goes where where fact cannot, where factual treatments cannot. The other issue is what is, are the audiences for documentary films globally? They're not that wide. So documentary films, by and large, are not commercial ventures, and drama is. I think that explains part of it. I don't think it's merely just the proclivities of the audiences, which may be a fair point as well, but I also think it's a more complex issue about who is interested in what, what can pass through censors, what commercial outlets want to purchase and air, and what counts as entertainment, because it really is an issue of apples and oranges, in a sense. And for the future, as you probably are following the situation on the ground in Syria, do you have any insight into how things could change for the art scene? I feel like in the immediate future, it's not going to be a priority. And what we will continue to see are commercial ventures. I think that Syrian drama will continue its future looks secure but you know at, at the moment it looks like there's a lot of supporting of the status quo mm. and mild critique but that changes from year to year and from production to production is very difficult to generalize Krista Salamandra is a professor of anthropology at Lehman College and the Graduate Center at the City University of New York. Her work explores visual, mediated, and urban culture in the Arab world. Her forthcoming book is titled Waiting for Light, Syrian Television Drama Production in the Satellite Era. It explores the cultural politics of contemporary fictional TV creation. She spoke with Mira Nabulsi. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. And that's it for us this week. Voices of the Middle East and North Africa is produced at KPFA Studios in Berkeley. Mira Nabulsi is our senior producer, our media partner, is a Status Hour podcast, and Jadalia Izin. You can find us on Twitter at Vomina underscore radio or listen to our past shows on iTunes or SoundCloud at Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. You can also reach us by email at vominaradio at gmail.com. Please join us next week for another edition of Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. And thank you for listening. <laughs>